Cause we got the alternative energy Molecular free autonomy And welcome to the Radioactive Show Produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne And heard nationally on the Community Radio Network Hello, I'm Emma Crunch And on today's Radioactive Show We hear from Marcus Atkinson A nuclear free campaigner in Western Australia About the demise of Cameco and financial prospects for uranium mining in Western Australia. Some good news there. And before that, I'll play you a quick clip from my conversation with Candace Paul um, of the English River Nation, First Nation in Canada. And she's speaking about the devastating impact that uranium mining has had on their communities. And that's that mining has been by Cameco. Later in the show, you'll hear my conversation with Christian Lemmy-Ruff about his exhibition called Mind the Gap that covers far-ranging issues and artistic mediums. So stay tuned for that. Well, I'm a member of English River First Nation in northern Saskatchewan. It's a Dene First Nation, and I'm the outreach coordinator for Committee for Future Generations. We've had the mining for 30, 40, 60 years in some places, and now they're doing the studies. Mm. That's backwards because we know it has intergenerational impacts. We know our moose, our food, our fish, our berries are contaminated with heavy metals and radionuclides. Um, They set the safety levels. We disagree that the safety levels are acceptable. They have all these years allowed miners to be exposed. And there's been, like the miners in Ontario all died. The miners from Clough Lake, most of them are already dead. Mm. The miners from Uranium City were dispersed, so they didn't show a cancer cluster. They only accept uh, lung cancer as the only cancer that uh, uranium mining causes from the radon gas. Wow. that's Yet in the United States, they accept 40 different illnesses, Mm. including cancers, as being caused by radiation exposure. So, like, how does that change from one border to another? You know, like, that's not not good information. They've had an influence on health districts. Um, they have what's called the Community Vitality Partnership with the health districts. Mm. Uh, so, you know, when we ask for studies, like there was never a baseline study done on the health of the people. Now the cancer rates are soaring and mm. everybody knows it. So our, our communities are in a constant state of grief. Mm. People, people who didn't even work in the mines are getting cancers because our, our country foods are... are our caribou, our moose, our fish, our berries that we depend on are, are being impacted. And those things don't know borders. Yeah, I've recently been speaking to Candace Paul, who campaigns against uranium mining and particularly the Canadian company Cameco in Saskatchewan in Canada, but um, over in Western Australia, you've also had experience with 
Cameco and its doings. Um, could you give us just a bit of a history of that company's involvement in the state from when it began exploration? Yep, there's two um, proposed uranium mines in WA that are owned by Cameco. Mm. Um, Kintyre, up kind of near the Pilbara area, um, is probably it has been on track the longest for Kamako and they bought that maybe oh, close to seven or eight years ago from Rio Tinto. Mm. And the other one is Yaliri, um, down in the gold fields, just north of Leonora. And they bought that off BHP probably about two years ago. And they've been really gung-ho on, on trying to get the approvals Um for those mm. and they've got um, conditional approval for Kintyre and they've got state approval for Yaliri just in the last few weeks Yeah, but it, it's a long long way away from a final approval and, and there's no real possibility of them moving ahead with mining projects at the moment. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, I was. It does seem like really mixed news because that uh, there was the recent approval um, overriding the EPA, but then I mean, in terms of Cameco and its finances, it's uh, in dire straits. It seems it's. Um, is it right that it's actually being sued by? Uh, no, it is suing Tepco um, around a uranium deal and the. TEPCO um, majorly downscaling in Japan in the post-Fukushima context? Yeah, totally. A lot of that has just come about in the last couple of weeks, but TEPCO have applied for a cancellation of Mm. a contract. They have a long-term contract to buy uranium from Cameco, Mm -hmm. and because of like Tepco is the operator of Fukushima, and we all know what's been going on there for the last six years. But Tepco just put in to cancel a contract, which would they, they they're estimating around one point three billion dollars of revenue for Tepco over the next ten years, but mm. for Cameco. Um, but Tepco is saying because of the situation in Japan, they have no future outlook for, for using that uranium and they're facing real difficulties at Fukushima but also at a lot of the other nuclear power plants they have but Cameco is looking at challenging that cancellation um, of contract from TEPCO and it looks like they might take them to the World Trade Organization or something but that's mm. just one of, of many court cases that Cameco has going on at the moment the Canadian Revenue Service is actually taking Cameco to court as well and claiming that Cameco owes them $2.2 billion Canadian dollars mm. um, in, in tax evasion. And the United States, the IRS, the same tax revenue service, is also looking at them and they're estimating around 150 million US dollars of tax evasion to the US as well. So so they're really in a huge financial problem um, if that comes through. But I think part of that as well is that the, the managing director of Cameco in Australia 
has just been called back to to Canada. So mm. he's leaving Perth after six years here of, of mm. running Tamako. But it's interesting with these international corporations which operate around the world and have deals around the world. Um, you know, it's it's quite. I can imagine it really takes a lot of solidarity to tackle them and compare what they're doing in different places. How has that played out over the years? Yeah, it's been like really, really good. We we did a trip to Canada last year mm. and we met with Candace and, and a lot of the First Nations people who have been fighting Tamako up in Saskatchewan for, for decades now. But But here in Western Australia... There's been a, a real support network that, that's built up around the state and nationally, and there's a really good relationship with the Madu mob up up there around Pungor, and, and they're really solid on on stopping that mine up at Kintai going ahead. Mm. And then there's been really good solidarity around Yaliri and, and the mob out in Leonora and that kind of area. And we've been doing the, the walk out there um, mm. down through Waluna, Yaliri and down into Leonora every year now for six years. And we've had a lot of support. We've had people come over from Japan and from Germany and from France and from Taiwan and, and all around the world. So that international solidarity has been really important, um, but also like the solidarity around Western Australia, and most importantly, just working with the traditional owners of those areas and helping them really have their voices heard. You're tuned to the Radioactive Show and hearing Marcus Atkinson, a nuclear-free campaigner uh, based in Perth. Before that, you heard the words of Candace Paul, just a quick clip of my recent conversation with her where she was outlining the, the devastating impacts that uranium mining has had on the lands around Saskatchewan in Canada. Let's get back to my chat with Marcus, and he's outlining the financial woes of Canadian mining company Cameco. themselves have said that they need a break-even price of 60 to 70 dollars a pound mm-hmm. to make it feasible and that's just to break even and the price at the moment is only around 25 dollars a pound so it, that price has a long way to go before Cameco even considers opening these mines or putting in the infrastructure to get there. So, so it really is a long way off. And, and like with all those court cases and everything mm. going on, it puts a lot of financial pressure on Cameco. But they also just announced last week that they posted $144 million in Canadian money. Um, that was their loss for this year mm-hmm. and and part of their reporting season for the stock exchange and stuff was that they posted that they lost 144 million Canadian dollars but they also wrote off the entire value of the Kintyre proposal so mm. that was valued I think at around 
240 million Canadian dollars, but they've written that off on their books, which kind of says that the value of it for them at the moment is, is zero, yeah. which really implies that there's no intention for them to go ahead at the moment with great. that because it's not financially feasible. Cool, awesome, that's great. And isn't it funny the way that things are valued and it's got zero value for them but so much value for many others, people, traditional owners of that area and or everyone else who's had the chance to travel through and even hasn't travelled there but has just heard about it. So um, their loss and uh, gain for everyone else. Um, and hopefully Cameco yeah, can really be held accountable in these courts for its, you know, dirty corporate behaviour and that um, more of their projects will be forced to... Um, be accountable for the damage that's been done. Yeah, totally. And I think Tamako, like, I think five or six years ago, they really just took this big economic gamble on this whole nuclear renaissance scenario. Mm. And, and it just really hasn't played out for them at all. And it's not just Tamako, Toshiba, which owns Westinghouse and stuff, Mm. They've just posted a, a $6.6 billion loss from their nuclear endeavours in the United States and stuff. So, like, Cameco is, is one of the biggest nuclear companies in the world, which is primarily focused around uranium mining. And and this whole industry, it's just this big domino effect, like Cameco's lost all this money and going down to Sheba's left lost all this money and going down and Arriva, the the big French nuclear company, has had to be bailed out by the French government and and their finances are in chaos at the moment. And these are the companies that back this nuclear renaissance which Mm. just isn't happening and there's no real outlook for it happening as renewable energy and stuff just like is overpowering the market all around the world at the moment with mm. like so much new renewable energy coming online because yeah there's no foreseeable future for a uranium mining industry in WA and the economics are just showing that and these companies don't have much time left to get out of the industry. Mm. Well um, thanks for chatting with us and well done to everyone's work for stalling those projects for all these years and contributing to hopefully what is, yeah, for the foreseeable future, uh, um, uranium mining free WA. And yeah, always a pleasure. And thanks <laughs> heaps for all the work you are doing, getting the word out about what's really happening in the news industry. Uh, yeah, it's our pleasure too. This is The Radioactive Show. I'm Emma Crunch and that was the chat I had with Marcus from Perth, Western Australia, outlining the demise of some of the mining prospects there, which I need to keep an eye on, but looks hopeful. And now uh, hear my conversation with with Christian Lemmy-Ruff about his upcoming and previously shown exhibition, Mine the Gap. Well, hi, Christian. Thanks very much for joining us on the Radioactive Show. And 
I'm excited to talk to you today about your exhibition, Mind the Gap. Um, mm-hmm. Could you just describe how you put the work together and maybe some of the themes it's exploring? Sure, yeah. Um, so Mind the Gap came from essentially like a hunger as a young adult and a young Australian, a young creative to better understand and explore Australia a bit deeper. Um, I'd travelled quite a lot overseas, especially Europe, and I think on one of those trips home I was flying over the outback um, somewhere around Alice Springs and just looked down out of the plane window and thought, I need to start engaging in all of that and mm. you know finding out more about it. And for myself, and also I felt like a, an obligation creatively to make work about you know where I'm from and and the country that I live in um so it kind of started just from that kind mm. of basic um interest um and intrigue or lack of awareness um about my own backyard mm. um and so I then decided to do a trip in 2014 um where I basically just jumped on a plane and flew over to Perth um and hitchhiked for about 3 months mm. um and that was a really wonderful experience because I think traveling alone, you're a lot more vulnerable and open to meeting people. And um, I ended up doing some volunteer work on um, cattle stations and for art centers and um, land councils in kind of central Australia. So just really tried to throw myself out of my comfort zone. Um, and with that, I guess I was confronted by just how much I didn't know and how I kind of lacked an awareness of Australia's longer history and it's the history of its first peoples and its colonial history and and, uh, some of the tensions between, um, you know, various ways of looking at land. I think that's what the the trip really left an impression on me, the way that um, people, for example, up in Arnhem Land understood and looked at land and their connection to land Mm. as opposed to my connection with it, say, on the East Coast or or kind of a common um, East Coast mentality of, understanding land and country they were quite different and i guess you see um those tensions even just recently around australia day for example or invasion Mm. day there's this kind of tension of what is australia's history and and what side of that history is being told where but it it does actually go through quite a few different areas like there's um works that look at the kind of um mining there's works that look at kind of our refugee policy there's works that are looking at um like privacy and kind of our foreign policy, like Pine Gap and stuff. So it's quite actually a diverse show. It, it probably tries to do too much. <laughs> it covers a lot of ground, but um, it the, the actual show itself um, is about 14 works, um, yeah. most of which are photographic pieces. Um, mm. There is some kind of sculpture and sound as well. I think that was a, a key thing that I wanted to start doing with this work was to explore new mediums and combinations mm. of mediums so it might be sculpture with photography with sound kind of all in one piece mm. um, to kind of build up a more layered um, way of telling stories yeah um, I think so yeah yeah just to um, add in there yeah it's interesting what you say about you know the many themes and topics and also mediums that you use and I, I got the chance to see the exhibition um, in Alice Springs last year and I also thought though hearing your backstory of how you put it together it's you know it does feel quite reflective of that sort of turning your eye to your own country and the many countries within it Um, and so I think that's yeah yeah, sort of a strength of the work as well that you're just you know looking at different 
um, issues from that perspective. And mm. yeah, that there are, you know, there are currents and themes that run through them as well in terms of exploring our identity here. And um, Yeah, and just, just trying to, um, I guess, challenge what that identity is or make people um, just kind of question um, this idea of Australia and, you know, like where it's come from. I mean, it's a, a Latin word that mm. we've kind of inherited this, you know, great Australian southern land, you know. It, it, so the, the term Australian itself is kind of a, um, a colonial kind of leftover um, idea. So mm. um, I kind of wanted to break that down a bit more. Um, and I guess looking at, it, it does look at perhaps the, some darker, more secretive sides of Australian history or Australian um, kind of landscape as well. Um, mm. In 2014, um, for example, I was in Fukushima um, doing some work for an NGO over there photographing um, people that had been displaced from their homelands due to the radioactive contamination. Um, and when I was came back from that trip, I, I had all these you know, quite intimate portraits of these people um, but wasn't sure how to best present them um, but then through Jesse Boylan, actually, and, and the people at Friends of the Earth and mm. Jem, and um, we, I was privileged to go on the radioactive exposure tour. Mm. And um, we, in fact, went to Olympic Dam, which is, you know, the biggest uranium mine in the world. And um, it was, in fact, uh, Australian uranium that was in the reactors in Japan when they melted down. Mm. So I thought that was a really interesting way of connecting you know, what is apparently a, a Japanese story, but it's quite closely linked to Australia um, and our kind of resources industry. So to to kind of have a finished work, I yeah. actually went and took some sand from um, from that area in Kukasa country with um, permission from Mick Starkey, one of the elders there, um, and then combined that earth um, representative of that mine and that area with these portraits in Japan. Mm. So trying to kind of connect these dots between things that are seemingly unrelated, like a public health disaster on the other side of the world and, and um, you know, uranium mining in Australia, tr trying to draw the connections between these things. Yeah, and um, um, have you had the chance with those works to show them to, say, um, in Kukatha community? Or I know you did exhibit your works on Aranda Country in Alice Springs where mm. you've also got the big uh, Pine Gap piece but has um, what response have you had to those powerful works linking say the uranium mining and the Fukushima disaster? Um, it's been an interesting response like I, I showed it I haven't actually showed it on Kukusa Country mm. um, um, but I did present it at Melbourne University um, on the fifth anniversary of the Fukushima disaster, mm -hmm. um, and there was like a kind of a health conference there, um, which a lot of kind of um, academics and professionals and, and doctors were, were looking at the images and, and really uh, interested to see that link um, and how it was done visually. Mm -hmm. um, but that being said, I was in Perth, and you know when you arrive in Perth, you see the big. BHP and Rio Tinto Towers and you kind of realise what town you're in and <laughs> um, I had a couple of people at the opening night in Perth uh, kind of, you know, who I think were, uh, you know, quite quite close with um, BHP or had, had been employed by them were kind of like challenging, um, you know, they basically didn't like the work. <laughs> they, mm. You know, they were kind of quite openly saying, oh, you know, um, 
they got quite defensive about, you know, um, yeah. how nuclear is the way of the future and all these kinds of things, which makes it kind of, you know, is a, it validates why you're doing it. Because if there's people that disagree with what you're doing, you realise that there is a story that needs to be told here. Yeah. yeah, but and then I do love the title of the exhibition, Mind the Gap, and I feel like that could, you know, reference a whole lot of works through it. Um, but, I mean, in particular, the I mean, one of the centrepieces, which is on the fly, is the... Uh, image of Pine Gap and mm-hmm. I know you exhibit in Nala Springs how was that experience of taking that work um, so close to the facility itself yeah I guess it was, uh, mm. it was surreal it was so surreal um, because in 2014 when I took the photograph I was like just to mention the word Pine Gap over the phone or in an email or in a text I was terrified you know mm. <laughs> I thought I was a goner um, because of photographing that place and you know the, the technicalities around publishing images of it, so to then be in Alice Springs, like putting up posters and telling people about it, and like going on radio and and you know doing this show and kind of really openly promoting this image and around the 50th anniversary um, protests and conferences, it was it was amazing actually. It was it was really um, exciting as an artist to at, at one stage be quite afraid of even talking about your work or publishing and then to that kind of that barrier breaks down and then you mm-hmm. go oh well I can actually talk about this and people can engage with it and see it now and I feel like it definitely had a good um, kind of wave of social momentum around the, t- the timing of the show analysis was particularly good because mm-hmm. it was like right on that 50th anniversary so that worked mm-hmm. out um, yeah really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's. I definitely was struck by it when I saw it, um, the full version of the image. So I definitely recommend listeners to check out your exhibition if they can. And you do have uh, an opening coming up in Melbourne. Can you just give us the details of that? Sure. Yep, it's um, it's coming up at 45 Downstairs, which is a gallery on Flinders Lane in mm-hmm. Melbourne CBD. Mm. Um, and the opening is on Tuesday, the 21st of March. Um, and it kicks off at 5 p.m. Yeah. Um, and we're, I feel privileged to have Professor Richard Tanter will be um, speaking at mm. the opening. Um, and there will also be kind of a live sound performance um, with um, special guest and um, Yoda Yoda man Neil Morris and, mm. and Christopher Lawrence. Um, so it should be a really special evening on yeah the 21st of March. So come Wonderful. along if, uh, if you can. That was Christian Lemmy-Ruff discussing his exhibition Mind the Gap and if you're in Melbourne, do go and check it out on March 21st. Earlier in the show, uh, we heard just a clip from Candace Paul of the Committee of Future Generations based in Saskatchewan, Canada, and you can look them up online. After that, uh, Marcus Atkinson gave us the download on the operations of Canadian company Cameco in Western Australia and particularly updates on the prospects of the Yaliri mine and the Kintai mine. Thanks to all guests for coming on the show today. And this has been another edition of the Radioactive Show produced on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri of the Kulin Nation in uh, Fitzroy, Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. You can podcast our shows on all the w's dot three the number cr.org.au forward slash radioactive and find us on Facebook. I'm Emma Crunch and I hope you've enjoyed today's show and be sure to tune in next week.
jail black males in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jail black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella, white fella, it doesn't matter what you colour. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio, and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What your name is, we've got the hell. Lots of changes, we need more brothers. Global Intifada, bringing you current affairs through revolutionary and protest music from around the world. Every Thursday afternoon from 5 till 6 on 3CR. Because music is our bomb. Do you want to dig down into the dirt and find out what's going on in the activist community? Are you concerned about environmental and social justice? Friends of the Earth has a new radio show, Dirt Radio, Mondays, 10.30 on 3CR. Join us to dig the dirt. Dirt. 